Hi, I'm Theo, and you're listening to the McGill International Review Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Nadim Huri, Executive Director of the Arab Reform Initiative. Before that, he led Human Rights Watch's Terrorism and Counterterrorism Program. He's written for Foreign Affairs and The Guardian, and has appeared on Democracy Now!, Radio Canada, and Al Jazeera. Before all that, he studied at McGill. We talk about the Arab Reform Initiative, the International Court of Justice's interim ruling on the Gaza genocide case, tensions between U.S. forces and Iranian proxies in the Middle East, U.S. interventionism in the region, and Lebanon's domestic political crisis. It's a fascinating conversation, and I was very lucky to have him on the podcast. Hello, hi, Nadim. Hi, Theo. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, I uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to come chat. And I'm before we jump in, I'm just kind of curious. You're right now. You work for the Arab Reform Initiative, and is that in uh, Paris? So yeah, no. I currently, I'm the executive director of the Arab Reform Initiative, and it's a it's actually a think tank on the MENA region. We've got offices in Paris, Beirut, and Tunis. Uh, I'm currently based in Paris, uh, where I moved a few years ago. But before that, I was in uh, Lebanon for about a decade. As a think tank, are you doing like policy recommendations or geopolitical things? Yeah, so we're mostly it's uh, mostly policy recommendations. I mean, the think that, so. My own background is uh, I was a human rights lawyer for a long time. Uh, and started Human Rights Watch in, in Lebanon. But the um, the think tank I run now, so we focus really on three questions, which is how can we get the, uh, how can we get more inclusive democratic governance in the region? How do we get to more social justice? And how do we get to more environmental justice? And we do that by, uh, you know, that we have really three pillars. One is promoting uh, homegrown research. So we have our own researchers, but we also promote uh, and support and mentor and accompany local researchers uh, in the region to look at the problems they see and try to sort of articulate what could be passed forward. That could include researchers or it could include activists who want to reflect about their activism, what worked, what didn't work, why what coalition they seek, what would they do differently in the future? And we try to kind of create a base for shared learning. The second pillar is to create spaces for what we call creating communities of practice across the region. So if people have been working on a particular issue in their country, but they want to share notes or they've had a similar experience that maybe other groups in other countries, you know, it could be people who've worked in, uh, you know, who, who became active in their syndicates or professional associations for certain democratic changes. It could be uh, groups working on a just uh, energy transition in their country. We try to bring them together, um, could be virtually, but also physically at least once or twice a year, where they sort of share notes, learnings, but beyond that, help them build potentially coalitions. And the last pillar is to, to do the sort of as they start coming together, articulating a potential pathway forward, help them put that into potentially advocacy. And it could be advocacy and lobbying with like international financial institutions like the IMF World Bank, could be the EU, could be, I don't know, the Canadian government. I mean, it depends really on, on context and, and, and where the priority is. So we don't do purely geopolitics, but geopolitics is sort of a key undercurrent because we need to understand what's going on to to think through what are different pathways for change. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Well, since we're going to jump in and talk about some uh, geopolitical stuff that's a little bit more serious and depressing, I'd be curious if you could tell me about some recent successes in terms of like uh, local environmental policy or social justice initiatives in, in the MENA region. Look, I mean, it's been... Uh... There's definitely been some very interesting initiatives. Uh, one of the challenges is how you do you define success. Uh, but for instance, we we launched a uh, Arab region hub for social protection that really brings together various activists uh, and policymakers across the region that are trying to push for approaching social protection as a human right. Um, now the we're in the mid, you know, part of that strategy is to also uh, lobby and convince uh, groups like the World Bank and the IMF, which have a key role in a number of the countries work on, 
to shift some of their policies. Um, so there's been a shift for now, I would say, from these institutions at the rhetorical level. It hasn't yet translated into actual concrete changes, but there's definitely a broader awareness that some of their policies um, are not, uh, you know, basically the policies they've been adopting have not been delivering any real uh, social protection. I think this became clear during COVID-19, but even more so with the repeated crisis. Um, you know, that's one example. I think uh, another example is to um, better understand how mobilizations in the region against uh, bad uh, waste management are coalescing, uh, drawing lessons, um, and trying to pull forward. The challenge is um, often, you know, to, to draw the lessons and to, and to push for change is a process that takes a few years. Uh, and in the last, I would say, six, seven years, the region has been rocket, rocketed with, by crisis almost on a yearly basis. Um, so on a very concrete example, we were working in Tunisia with um, young uh, elected municipal councillors uh, who had gone in, and it was their first sort of entry into politics, local politics, and they were carrying a number of very interesting projects that really mattered to youth groups. Um, and as they sort of really came into their own, um, uh, you know, there was almost a regime change in Tunisia. Uh, not almost, there was a regime change. And Kaisaid, the new president, has changed the configuration for local authorities. So overnight, uh, their mandate changed. Um, so that's some of the challenges. Uh, so it is it does feel at times against all odds to, to do this, but there's still a lot of ideas and the problems aren't going away. So there's a lot of need for, for new ideas, but more importantly, need for groups from the region to, to push forward these ideas. Right. Well, I'm glad there's people working on it. It's been uh, pretty tough to watch the democratic backslide in many MENA countries, especially in like Tunisia. And then now we see a geopolitical crises hit the region. It's it's tough. So one thing that happened recently was the, uh, the ICJ court ruling on the uh, genocide in Gaza brought forth by South Africa. So I guess the first thing I'm curious about is how do you view the ruling? Do you think it, it do you think it was a reasonable case? Do you think the response from the, the court was, was, uh, reasonable? Was it a rebuke of Israel? And, um, you know, what, what do you see as the consequences of it moving forward? Sure. Uh, look, let me just first uh, start by saying it was very, it was a very important case and I'm very thankful for South Africa to have taken the case to the ICJ, because in some ways um, we were living in a moment after October 7th, particularly in this region where double standards of international law were duly exposed, particularly from Northern countries that insisted on international norms when it came to Ukraine and suddenly set them aside uh, when it came to Israel. Um, now this has happened in the past. We can talk about Syria, many other countries, but. This was really glaring, and it was happening, you know, almost in parallel between Ukraine and um, and what was happening in uh, Israel and Gaza. So the fact that South Africa uh, recentered the issue of international law at this particular moment was important, not just for uh, Gaza but also for the sense of international law. I think, secondly. It also showed that in the coming period, we need a much more diverse leadership globally of countries, including countries from the global south, that can be champions for international law. Um, and I hope that what South Africa has done will encourage other countries uh, in the global south to become real advocates and champions for such norms. Um, so that was really important as an initiative. Um, now, in terms of the uh, case itself, and then the, again, this is a preliminary ruling, right? This is about whether there should have been, should be taken any um, measures, uh, immediate measures uh, by Israel while the underlying substance of the case is considered. Um, the case itself, uh, you know, if you read the submission made by South Africa, but also the team that they sent to The Hague, I think they did a really uh, outstanding job of articulating different positions. They took this very seriously and they managed to build a team 
that not only was able to articulate legal arguments forcefully, but I also believe managed to uh, center uh, the humanity of Palestinians in their submissions. And I think this was important. Um, you know, so I think the um, the process itself was important. It was important to introduce, again, legal concepts to uh, violations and atrocities that we were watching. And if I look at the ruling now, I think the ruling uh, uh, was also uh, quite important. Again, it didn't, this is not about whether a genocide has been committed because this will be looked at at a later date once full submissions are made. And we know that the process can take sometimes years. But they did uh, suggest that there are elements that will take them, uh, that leads the court to take this very seriously. They indicated, and in a way, by telling Israel that Israeli politicians have to stop uh, using dehumanizing language and other forms, uh, I think they, you know, uh, I think they put everyone on notice. And in a way, they put uh, also countries that were actively supporting Israel uh, in the conflict by sending weapons and so forth, that they need to be also extremely careful. Uh, and it also put them on notice. Um, again, the crime of genocide is a very grave crime, not be taken lightly. Uh, we know that there will be, uh, the, to build a legal case for genocide and the full submission, the issue of intent is going to be very important. Um, South Africa did not take the exercise lightly. Uh, they put together legal arguments for it. Uh, and now the court has to uh, has to decide, but I think it really recentered the notion of international law at a at a particularly important moment. Yeah, I um, I was also uh, I guess glad to see at least as as a um, symbolic motion this this case you know holding holding some of the Western countries more accountable, holding Israel accountable when it seems like in the past it's gotten a pass. Um, on a lot of international humanitarian law violations. And the initial ICJ statement, which didn't exactly call for a ceasefire, but was very strong in condemning some of Israel's actions and commanded it to, you know, pause all actions that, that could be genocidal. Do you view this as a, a positive development? Or is there another light in which it could kind of lend some legitimacy to Israel's actions by not immediately calling for a ceasefire? No, I think the ruling um, was strong in that regard. Again, you know, one has to understand the the way the court tends to look at these issues in terms of provisional measures. Yes, it would have been preferable, and in my view, there was a legal basis to push for the court to call for a ceasefire, uh, like it has, for instance, uh, in the context of uh, Russia and Ukraine, where you know told Russia to sort of withdraw. Uh, the complicating factor here was Israel argued, look, our hostages are still being held in Gaza. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting the court to go all the way and call for a ceasefire. Uh, but as you mentioned, I think the, the court did um, what its mandate under the Genocide Convention requires. It, it put people on notice. It uh, pushed back, particularly against Western countries that even refused to contemplate that what might be happening there is genocide. Uh, it did, uh, I think, clearly indicate that not only will it be looking at statements that Israeli politicians are making, and if you notice, since the court ruling, Israeli politicians' statements have changed quite a bit. Uh, in terms of how they're, uh, and what even Israeli military leaders are saying, at least in, in their articulation. And it has forced Israel to uh, actually engage with the court on things like, what humanitarian measures have you taken? You're saying it's not genocide. What are you doing to distinguish between uh, the civilian populations and what would be legitimate military targets? So yes, it's far from perfect, uh, but in itself, the exercise was important. But also, I think it shows, and I think this is maybe where the importance is, that international law still has a role to play. So even if the U.S. wants to provide blanket immunity to Israel at the level of the Security Council by always using its veto, there could be other avenues that could be pursued. 
And I think here the question is, and our eyes need to be looking at another international legal institution, and that's the International Criminal Court. International Criminal Court has a mandate, has the jurisdiction, and the prosecutor of the ICC has, on paper at least, opened an investigation at the crimes committed in Gaza, not from now, but actually from a few years ago, because Palestine, the state of Palestine gave jurisdiction to the court. Uh, but what have they been doing? Because while the ICJ looks at disputes between states, and in this case, between South Africa and Israel over the determination of the convention uh, to stop the genocide, uh, the ICC has jurisdiction over all war crimes. Um, and I think, and I'm hoping that the ICC prosecutor uh, starts taking more meaningful measures, frankly, uh, to properly investigate the crimes. The, that, uh, he has been way too shy, probably by fear of upsetting uh, the U.S. and others, of, of doing what is needed. Yeah. Well, that'll be that'll be good to see because I've been a little bit uh, disillusioned by the current case about genocide. It seems to rely so much on intent and rely so much on the rhetoric, but I feel like the real consequences that are harming civilians seem to exist either way, whether there's intent or not. You know, if a country is grossly ignoring civ civilian casualties, but it doesn't intend to target civilians, it still seems like a pretty horrific war crime, even if it doesn't count under the genocide convention. Um, oh, look, you're right. But I think this is why this is the so one has to understand the uh, scope of the case in front of the ICJ, International Court of Justice, because you're right. The crime of genocide has a very high threshold on the issue of intent. Now, I would argue in this case, the statements that so many Israeli officials uh, did uh, on multiple levels, from their civilian leadership to uh, the military leadership, and how these statements actually corresponded to the behavior, gave South Africa uh, a lot of, I would argue, evidentiary elements to push its arguments forward. But you're right that ultimately the ICJ ruling is looking at a, a slice of the issue. And that's why it's going to be important. Uh, you know, the ICC has a much broader mandate under the Rome Statute to look at all sorts of uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, where and there um, the element of intent that is so central to the Genocide Convention uh, uh, can be approached differently depending on what is the war crime that you're trying to uh, to prove and, and so forth. Right. So since the ruling, we've seen a little bit of a change in the posturing of the U.S.'s foreign policy in the region, some more criticisms of Israel and calls on it to uh, scale back its war in Gaza. And I think even the Israeli military has announced somewhat of a change in strategy. Do you, do you see this change in strategy happening, or does it feel more like a continuation of the past few months? No, I, look, I, it's, uh, there are many reasons why we're starting to see the beginning of a change. I mean, some of it may have to do with the court, but I also think some of it has to do uh, with developments on the ground and, frankly, domestic politics in the U.S. Um, so the Biden administration has lost support uh, amongst key parts of the electorate that Biden needs to win, needs to mobilize, for him to be reelected uh, in the fall of 2024. Um, you know, so uh, we see a lot of left-leaning youth in the US turning away, saying, we're obviously not gonna vote for Trump, but we're not gonna vote for Biden either. Uh, we've also seen a massive drop in the Arab American vote uh, in terms of their intent to vote for Biden. And they're very present in key uh, states like Michigan, uh, which are essential for Biden to have a pathway to the White House. Um, but also, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that there are a number of African-American voters um, have also expressed clear displeasure about the policy, plus dissent within the U.S. administration. So I think the, the shift, there's a real shift uh, within the um, U.S. administration, again, I don't want to overstate it, but there, you know, there are elements of dissent and there are domestic politics factors 
that are uh, pushing the U.S. right now to say, okay, we've embraced Israel uh, fully, we've embraced Netanyahu fully after October 7th, gave him a green light for everything, uh, covered for him, blocked any uh, effort at accountability, uh, you know, more than 110 days in, um, they haven't achieved uh, the success that the Israelis wanted to achieve, and we're starting to pay a domestic price. So we need to kind of think of uh, finding plan B. And I think that's that's definitely weighing on the U.S. administration uh, thinking. It doesn't mean they're going to stop their support for Israel, but I think they will try to look for another uh, soft landing. And I think in Israel, there is a realization that the objectives they set themselves uh, are failing. And here, you know, I don't think any of the uh, Israeli leaders think very much about the well-being of Palestinians. But, uh, you know, they do care about the Israeli hostages. And the fact that after all this time, the only hostages they've managed to release have been through negotiation is probably forcing elements of the Israeli establishment to revisit and rethink uh, their support. Um, but also, you know, the other important dimension is globally, people started realizing uh, that uh, the Gaza conflict is starting to, um, you know, reverberate not just regionally, by inter but also internationally. Uh, so the fact of uh, that the Red Sea and the passage through the Suez Canal is no longer safe, this will have an impact on the global economy. So I think there are a lot of factors pushing uh, a number of countries that initially backed Israel, come what may, to sort of start asking themselves until when and what's the exit strategy uh, and how do we do it. Yeah, let's... Let's talk about those regional tensions. We saw last week, you know, an Iranian group, an Iranian-backed group in Iraq, attack U.S. base in eastern Jordan, which killed three service members. And one thing I was surprised about is before the American reprisal, the Islamic resistance in Iraq, this coalition of groups, actually said it would spend attacks against U.S. forces in the region. Um, I'm curious if this is surprising to you. I didn't exactly see it coming. Does it mean that they made a miscalculation in striking the U.S. base in Jordan? So uh, I don't think they made a miscalculation in striking the U.S. base. I mean, if you follow, there have been, uh, uh, the, I think of them as almost like harassment actions against U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. Those have been going on for some time. And all of these groups have always made it clear that their objective is ultimately to push the U.S., out of these uh, countries. I think perhaps where they were surprised is usually these attacks don't end up leading to any death. Uh, so they lead to some physical damage, uh, but you know these are not massive payloads, uh, you know, in terms of the bombs they have on these drones or on these rockets. Um, and usually uh, if you, you know, statistically they end up, um, causing minimal damage. And so these groups want to poke, want to harass U.S. forces, but they didn't necessarily want to have uh, the full wrath and a full response by uh, the U.S. forces. And um, uh, so I think their statement was a way of trying to gain some time and create some, some uh, I think, some you know, deniability or in the hope of, of minimizing what the U.S. would do. And I think the U.S. is clearly not going to go to uh, full-fledged war over that either. Uh, they had to respond, so they did. They responded. But if you notice, they decided, and I think that's probably a, a wise decision to avoid further um, escalation. They didn't strike Iran. Uh, in a way, they indicated that there will be a response, giving time, I think, to, to key uh, IRGC members, perhaps, to uh, vacate some of these facilities. Um, but is the region at a very tense moment? Definitely. Uh, you know, I think right now, uh, most players in the region, from the U.S. to armed groups like Hezbollah, like the Qatar, Hezbollah, and Iraq, and others, none of them are necessarily looking for a full-blown war at this stage. 
But everyone is playing a very dangerous game of chicken, so to speak. You know, everyone is sort of not wanting to lose face, wanting to to, to keep a certain amount of deterrence. Um, and the problem is, the longer this goes, uh, you don't know if uh, a mistake could happen uh, that could lead to escalation. Um, you know, maybe a strike that goes terribly wrong, and then people need to respond, and when the response leads to more aggravated response. So every, the region is teetering, and the only the best way to uh, to reset is to have an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, and I think this should be the main priority right now: uh, a ceasefire in Gaza, uh, which then can create the space to. Um, negotiate the release of hostages and to actually have a real political track for Palestine uh, to get out of the, uh, frankly, rot that we had seen on Palestine in the last few years. We had been completely marginalized uh, while Palestinian rights were being violated on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the U.S. is trying to pretend that these regional tensions aren't stemming from Gaza and they're not going to put more pressure on Israel, but you fundamentally seem to view it as all, all these proxy conflicts with, with Hezbollah, with groups in Iraq and Syria, with the Houthis as, as stemming from Gaza. And the only way to, to stop them would be to get a ceasefire in Gaza. Is this, am I understanding you correctly? Uh, look, this is not analysis. This is what the parties are saying. I mean, if you listen to what the Houthis have said, uh, they were very clear in saying the attacks will stop when there's a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, when you listen to what Hezbollah has said publicly, but also when you get some information from what has come out of the uh, meetings that Hezbollah held with various you know, representatives that were sent by the U.S. directly or indirectly to talk to them in the last few weeks, saying... Yes, we will negotiate potentially over things over the Israel-Lebanon border, but the real negotiation and any uh, any sort of cessation of hostilities will only take place when uh, there's a ceasefire in in Gaza. So, um, and the U.S. knows it. You know, the U.S. knows it, and I think they. I mean, otherwise, how would you explain why Biden is spending so much energy and time and actual air miles? trying to uh, uh, build some regional support for whatever the U.S. Is, is proposing. I think the U.S. is aware of it, but until now, the U.S. doesn't want to put too much pressure on Israel to uh, to provide Israel with more space and time. But I, I do think the clock is ticking, and definitely uh, probably the patience of Biden with Netanyahu is, is running low. Again, uh, not necessarily out of love, for the Palestinians or out of care for the Palestinians, but because I think Biden and his team realize the political prospects of Biden in the re-election in the U.S. are being affected. So actually all these protests that we're seeing in many countries, notably in the U.S., do matter. These are important steps because politicians today uh, in key countries their foreign policy is often determined by the number of votes they will win or lose in Michigan, as opposed to the lives they might be saving in Gaza. It's very unfortunate, uh, but that's how politics these days seems to be running. Right. In the upcoming U.S. presidential election, which um, we'll, we'll be seeing the reverberations of this conflict there, I guess, I guess the ideal situation would be a lot of pressure on Biden to put pressure on Israel to scale back and to scale back the attacks on on Iranian proxies. But I, I just want to confirm that what would be your take on uh, if, if, if Trump came to power? Obviously, there'd be a lot of domestic issues and across the world. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of chaos. But he also was somewhat um, uh, less interventionist in his foreign policy, I guess. What, what do you what would you see as a Trump foreign policy for the Middle East. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I think a, a Trump presidency, in my view, would be disastrous. That doesn't mean that I endorse, obviously, what Biden is doing. But uh, Trump is, uh, we should remember that it was under Trump that the embrace and the bromance between Trump and Netanyahu and the uh, 
single-minded pursuit of uh, bilateral normalization deals between Israel and other Arab countries without actually taking into account uh, Palestinian rights. I mean, this was a key pillar of, uh, of Trump. And in a way, when it comes to the Middle East, uh, Trump is likely to be very close to the Israeli far right. Um, um, and they've shown this, right? Let's remember Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the U.S. embassy. Um, uh, so it's hard to predict what Trump would necessarily do. I mean, it's part of his, you know, he's more of a master of chaos than anything else. There's a certain amount of unpredictability. Uh, will it fundamentally change U.S. policy? I think one thing that has been distressing is that U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Israel has been consistent across administrations. Uh because in many ways, uh, U.S. policy on Israel is almost like a domestic issue. So it's about votes and so forth. So whoever comes to the White House, whoever is Secretary of State in the U.S., ends up pursuing policies that all end up very much looking alike, even if perhaps sometimes the discourse may change or the approach may change slightly. Um, in you know, so I'm I'm not necessarily looking forward to a. Uh, Trump administration to kind of do things better or differently. What I would actually pin hopes on is to see particularly the younger generation in places like the U.S., but hopefully as well in Canada, the U.K., Europe, and elsewhere, uh, making the issue of justice for Palestine a domestic political issue. That will shift. And at that point, this becomes part of institutional politics, uh, and you will see political parties then uh, take more principled approaches. And then the, you know, the figure of the leader becomes less important, because really this is about uh, questions of justice and a commitment, um, and this requires buy-in and sustained political support. I mean, look at, look at the Labour Party in the UK. Uh, and how their leadership uh, has not taken a principled position in favor of Palestine, despite rank and file within the party being uh, supportive of the rights of Palestinians, but also seeing massive protests week after week in London. So uh, I think this we're, we're, we really need to think about political organizing. Uh, and we're seeing it. I mean, we're seeing the kind of the the real struggles and the contentious politics, be it on campuses, on the streets, and in institutions, and in media outlets, uh, and in political parties, and within administrations. So I think these, it's important, uh, you know, um, if you want to see change in policies vis-a-vis -vis Israel, Palestine, you will need to see these forms of dissent take shape even more. You will need to see dissenters be able to, to organize, propose uh alternatives and again what we're asking for here in my view is not an exception for palestine we just want palestine to be treated uh like any other occupation that has gone on for for decades yeah absolutely i think from my perspective at mcgill in montreal i'm actually somewhat heartened by this aspect because i see a lot of public support. I see a lot of people learning about the conflict that i don't think we're thinking about it beforehand lots of protests um, lots of student activism about it. So I, I hope we see somewhat of a, a change in Canada. And I think it probably mirrors what we're seeing in the U.S. Um, another aspect of U.S. foreign policy that's obviously getting uh, lots of critiques uh, in, in related to the region is the 85 targets hit in, in Syria and Iraq um, after the attack in eastern Jordan. I mean, we saw the countries that we expected to be against it, like uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Russia stand against it and say this is this is awful. But we even saw some in the West more progressive and and liberal politicians and political leaders critiquing it or saying it's a bit of an escalation. Um, it's unjustified. Do you think? Um, well, I guess I, I assume I assume your take is that this this was a bit of an escalation and uh, maybe Biden went too far. But also, do you see? The political winds shifting in the West against U.S. interventionism more broadly, but also specifically in this case. 
Look, I think this is a uh, this is an important question that is fundamentally about is about uh, you, as you mentioned, it's about U.S. interventionism and U.S. military place in the Middle East, um, and in a way, um, uh, you know, the, the Middle East has been in a region where you know you can um, try to try to leave it, but it's not that easy in some ways. You know, like the uh, I think the U.S. be it under Obama. And then under Trump and even under Biden, has actually, uh, in many ways, wanted to pivot away from the region, and they wanted they've spent less effort and and energy and um, um, resources, and I suspect probably whoever wins the next presidential election, we will see withdrawal most likely from Iraq and Syria. I mean, I think there are a lot of voices inside the administrations that are pushing. Uh, for for this, uh, but you know, so the real question then, and I think this is in itself, given the the harm that U.S. military intervention has done, um, that would probably not be a bad thing. The question, and that's the harder question, is how does the U.S. do it, and what fills the gap? And I think this is where sometimes these critiques don't take this into full account, um, because. If the U.S. withdraws without a real planned process, we've seen it in other countries. Uh, it's not necessarily more democratic, more peaceful actors that are filling the gap. Uh, I mean, obviously, Exhibit A would be Afghanistan. Yeah, you know where the Taliban just seize power again, but also, uh, you know, in in some parts of uh, uh, Syria, if the U.S. withdraws, it might be either uh, pro-Iranian Shiite groups that are very far from being democratic and actually sometimes are not even Syrian that will occupy that part of Syria. It, we could see an ISIS return. We could see in northern Syria, Turkey invading uh, Kurdish areas. So it's tricky. You know, I mean, the, the nature does not like a vacuum. Yes, the, the, there is a need, you know, the, the sort of Pax Americana in the region particularly the U.S. involvement since 2003 has brought a lot of um, uh, disasters to the region. Uh, and so they haven't been this, uh, you know, this, this discourse that they would bring democracy and, and economic prosperity. That has not materialized at all. The sudden withdrawal of the U.S., is not necessarily going to lead to more democratic and, uh, in a way, legitimate forces seizing power. And so the challenge for us is how do you navigate this to make sure that the uh, as the U.S. withdraws, the coming regional order is more inclusive um, and it doesn't end up just creating more competition. One. I would say encouraging sign was finally the deal between Saudi and Iran. You know, we're seeing less Saudi-Iranian immediate warfare competition. It doesn't mean it has disappeared, but it's less. Another encouraging sign is the fact that within the Gulf countries, the 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 fight between Qatar and the rest of the Gulf countries, notably Saudi and UAE, has winded down as well. Uh, so there might be, you know, uh, slight more opportunity for uh, more constructive engagement, but we're not fully there yet as we see because what we see, based on what we see in Sudan, what we see in Yemen, what we see in in, um, uh, in Libya, or even what we see in, in, in Northeast Syria. Tomorrow the U.S. withdraws, and that might very well be their position by the end of the year. Uh, will it be peaceful or will Turkey then just use it as an opportunity to attack uh, the Kurdish forces because they have a score to settle with them. Um, so just to say, I think it, it's complicated. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think about if, if the U.S. ended up leaving the region, what, what countries would take leadership roles in, in running a kind of an, a new order? And I fear that the, the countries that would end up doing this would be kind of the old U.S. allies in Egypt and the, the Gulf countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, which maybe could lead to a more um, stable region, but probably not a more democratic one. That's my impression. Does that seem correct? Yeah, I mean, 
Look, the region, uh, I mean, the, the, there will be, Egypt is, is too divided these days and is going through a massive uh, economic crisis. So its ability to project power has actually been reduced greatly. Uh, what you see in the region today is, you know, the ones that are able to project power are Iran, Turkey, uh, Israel in some context, and UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, and they're competing. They're competing. They competed uh, very uh, significantly at a time, and we tend to forget this, but under Obama, uh, after 2013, 2014, um, Obama sent very clear signals that the U.S. is going to be pulling out gradually. Uh, and this actually led to more. Uh, you know, each actor in the region was trying to position themselves. And we ended up with more competition between the UAE against Qatar, between Saudi and the Iranians. And this had uh, consequences. You know, this uh, we saw how these actors behaved in, in Syria. We saw how these actors behaved in Yemen. We saw how these actors behaved in, in Libya and so forth. Um, so right now, the... You know what we know is we need a new regional order to emerge. You know, in the sort of Gramsci sense, uh, the old world is dying and the new world is yet to be born, and we're in sort of in that between period. And, and uh, Gramsci's writing would say that in that between period is when you sort of have, you know, monsters come out. Um, you know, and I think there are vacuums, there are spaces to be seized, uh, and usually it's. Um, it's these other actors that will emerge. I mean, we saw ISIS was an example of how it managed to to, to seize a vacuum and, and to kind of uh, come out. We can talk about different examples in the last 10 years, but it's... Um, so I think that there's a real uh, need for pursuit. Also, one power that we didn't talk about is actually the European Union, which is, you know, right there in the Mediterranean with all these other countries, but that has been so divided and also has been so focused on Ukraine that it has not been able to have any meaningful voice and act almost as an anchor of stability uh, for a potential new order around the Mediterranean. I mean, we always, you know, we've been talking about the various armed conflicts. We can also think about, uh, you know, the the Mediterranean space uh, should be, and the Mediterranean Sea uh, could be and should be a, a space for shared prosperity for exchanges, for, you know, to play that sort of historical role that was the role of the Mediterranean. What is it today? It's a graveyard for yeah. fleeing migrants. Uh, and, uh, you know, it has become this sort of hyper-policed border, uh, which reminds me of sort of the border between the U.S. and Mexico, except those who are enforcing that maritime border uh, Europe is outsourcing that enforcement to to different dictators and strong men on the southern side of the Mediterranean. Right. Um, so there's a real power vacuum, uh, and uh, and you know I, I this is definitely I'm definitely not <laughs> I, what I'm saying is not that the U.S. actually needs to reengage more. That's not at all my point. Uh, but my point is rather uh, just more U.S. disengagement will not necessarily lead. Uh, automatically to more peaceful or more democratic places. It's slightly more complicated to kind of build the alternative and have this alternative take shape and form in any meaningful uh, way. And, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has a tendency to rush in without thinking through the consequences, and it also has a tendency to rush out without thinking through a proper uh, transition uh, and again, this is not new, uh, but you know, I think the images from Afghanistan uh, with people trying to cling on planes as they leave, you know, which reminds us of the photos of Vietnam of people trying to cling on helicopters as they leave. This sort of you know transition out needs to be prepared a bit more meaningfully to to ensure that the ensuing vacuum does not become a space for more conflict. Let's zoom in quickly on one particular area that's been affected and a place where you spent a lot of time in, in Lebanon. Since 2019, we've seen pretty disastrous domestic issues, financial crisis and, and political deadlock. And now it's somewhat embroiled in the regional conflict with Hezbollah in the south. 
you know, at a low scale war with Israel and receiving backing from Iran. Um, I guess I'm curious, do you see a link between uh, Lebanon's internal political issues and the the sectarian nature of its political system? Uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not fully sure I, I fully understand the question. I mean, uh, yes, there's a, if the question is, has the, is the crisis in Lebanon linked as well to the sectarian situation in the country? Um, if that's the question, I think then the answer is obviously yes. You know, this is also a, a, a system of governance uh, that is way past its expiry date. You know, it is a rotten kleptocracy now where the sectarian warlords use a sectarian identity as a way of just exercising control on parts of the population, but also as a way to justify their pillaging of public goods and of state goods and uh, to power their patronage networks. Um, and that's a system that has uh led to a total state collapse in many ways in Lebanon um and that collapse has taken many shapes the obviously most dramatic it was the explosion of the port you know where actually for years and years and years no one took action to remove this danger uh but it has also taken the form of the economic collapse after 2019 where the entire population lost their savings in the banks, which turned out to be a big Ponzi scheme, uh, and no one has been held to account to date in, in Lebanon. Um, so yeah, the, the um, again, I would say, like most of the region, but in Lebanon even more so, what the problem is at its heart is a governance problem and a pact between the state and the society for more decent, better uh, governance. And that has, you know, uh, that, that is broken. And in the absence of the state, uh, you end up in a situation where a group like Hezbollah is deciding not only the country's foreign policy, but it's probably deciding one of the questions that is at the heart of the notion of sovereignty, which is the decision of war and peace. Yeah. So actually the decision of war and peace in Lebanon on the Lebanese side uh, is ultimately decided by Hassan Nasrallah. Uh, and um, not only is this a violation of sovereignty, I mean, it's not very tenable as a as a as a very social pact. Uh, but yeah, I think the reason is that the um, the the warlords in Lebanon and the kleptocrats were so busy stealing that they didn't build the uh, state institution. Today, the Lebanese army survives uh, not because the state is able to pay their salaries; the state is unable to pay their salaries. But they basically get cash and a bit of support from Qatar and the U.S. Uh, to, and even that's barely sufficient for Lebanese soldiers to, to do anything, let alone actually protect the Lebanese border. Um, so it's a, a, you know, for me, what, what has been tragic in Lebanon is uh, the Lebanese population in 2019 realized this. Uh, did try to rebel against it and try to imagine an alternative course. Uh, but in that measure, it failed to, to supplant uh, the leaders, which used different forms from repression to buying people out, but really kind of repressive, playing on people's divisions. And they managed to undermine that movement. But Lebanon will only, I think, stand again on its feet um, if it can uh, bring notions of accountability into the system, hold those responsible for the multiple disasters accountable, uh, create a new form of politics that would uh, allow these differences that the Lebanese have, which really are a source of diversity and richness to, to continue coexisting, but actually allow for a better, more decent governance. Um, am I optimistic about it right now? No. Uh, but there are still a lot of fantastic initiatives that are taking place, and those need to be nurtured and 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 supported, uh, because we know that the old system maybe did not fall after the uprising and the revolution in 2019, um, but it's also unable to govern either today. You know, I mean, it's almost like a it's a parasite uh, that is sucking the Lebanese entities' blood out, uh, but it's unable to regenerate itself. So that's that's a, not a big consolation, 
but there's a sense that it it uh, you know it can keep on going, keep on going, but it with every year it is uh, losing steam. The problem is in the process it is um, destroying key components of what is needed to rebuild Lebanon tomorrow, including we're seeing a massive migration of Lebanese. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a pretty grim picture, unfortunately. Um, but I appreciate getting your, your take on it. I, uh, I fear that sometimes talking about the Middle East, we focus so much on, on geopolitical concerns and perhaps economic concerns or, or, uh, fights between different blocks of countries that we forget about the, the people on the ground and other parts of the region that are, are neglected. So, uh, we've been talking for an hour now, almost, um, uh, are there any any things that you think you'd like to talk about? Any things you think people ought to pay more attention to that we're we're forgetting right now? No, look, I think the the um, often people look at the uh, Middle East, particularly in places like North Africa and Europe, via uh, the images coming to them, which tend to be either images of conflict, chaos, displacement, uh, you know, wars, and so forth, and um, I guess what people should realize more is underneath that or beyond that is exactly what you're saying is stories of uh, people and individuals like any part of the world that are trying to uh, find solutions, have high levels of energy, innovation, creativity, resilience, um, and that these stories get uh, sidelined. And the more time passes, I realize the fact that these stories are not being told uh, it allows uh, particularly decision makers to dehumanize large segments, which makes it easier when something happens uh, like Syria or like now Gaza or Sudan to simply dehumanize or not care, not feel the sort of solidarity uh, that is uh, needed. So I just want to encourage people to uh, invest more time seeking out these stories. I think today with the various forms of social media, uh, we've seen how, particularly, for instance, in Gaza, young reporters were able to communicate directly, and people are discovering that they have sometimes the same dream. So to keep to keep building uh, these sorts of uh, bridges, and that uh, for people, and I think we started with this, and maybe I will conclude with that, that um, the Middle East is not so far, is not so foreign, and what gets decided in Ottawa and in Washington and in London and in Paris and in Brussels directly impacts these countries. So people are also voters, people are also citizens in their countries, and they should uh, make their votes count to make sure that whatever these capitals are doing in the region is supporting a transition towards more democracy, more social justice, and more environmental justice. Absolutely. I appreciate it, and I, I appreciate the work you do at the Arab Reform Initiative. Great. Thank you very much. Bye.